with you. It is good to be with you again this morning, uh, where we will be welcoming uh, Dr. Keith Lloyd, who will be speaking about the authority of the scriptures, and this is his first week, week one of three, and then I'll be back, actually the rabbis will be back, uh, and then I'll be back in a, another few uh, weeks following that. Uh, so we've got quite a, a, a great fall, fun-filled, fun um, theology-packed fall here that I'm really looking forward to. Uh, as we, before I turn things over uh, to Dr. Keith Lloyd, let us go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious God, we give you thanks for the gift of this day, another opportunity to gather here for health, for, for this for this very breath that you give us, for life, and the call of your spirit to this community, to this place where we can learn and grow together in faith and understanding as we seek to know you better. Open our eyes to see your truth. Open our ears to hear the wisdom imparted today and soften our hearts so that we may uh, feel and be broken as you feel and are broken. God, be with us. Guide us, guard us, and keep us. In the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Okay. All right. Wow. Having been a musician for a number of years, this feels really weirdly familiar. A lot of people are uncomfortable with microphones. I'm like, no, it feels like home to me. It's it for that part. It's going to squeal if I walk around. Think we're all right? All right. So. I was asked uh, by Michael to talk about the authority of Scripture, and actually I thought that was probably the most boring topic I was ever asked to talk about. <laughs> and I thought, man, what can I do? Because as you all know, I always try to like look at something a little sideways. So this is a, a sort of sideways look at the authority of Scriptures. Um, okay, it's not, and there we go. So let's begin with, you know, one of the classic texts. Do not think I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Next week I'll talk about till all is accomplished. This week, staying with this part. Whoever then annuls one of these the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever keeps and teaches them, he should be called great in the heaven, in the kingdom of heaven. 
<clears throat> also, we know that Jesus' teaching technique, because this occurs, is written down in the Sermon on the Mount, that his teaching technique is, you have heard, but I say to you, which leads um, in Mark and in other places uh, for people to say about Jesus, he speaks with authority, not as the scribes, meaning that the scribes um, mostly would just record and repeat the scriptures, and the scriptures themselves were supposed to speak to you. All right, we also know this verse, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, correction, training in righteousness, the man of God. This is one that comes up every time you look under authority of scripture. Now, there's some problems with this. Jesus emphasizes the permanence of the law, the Torah, which is what he would mean by the law, the first five books. And Jesus updates it, emphasizing the need to internalize it. If you look at the pattern, he says, you know, you shouldn't kill someone. I say, but you can kill someone in your heart. And you shouldn't uh, commit adultery, but you can do that in your heart. So he takes it up a notch by saying the law is not just something to keep externally, but to keep internally. And even though people will quote this scripture, Paul writing in 2 Timothy, as you'll see, this is one of the debated books of the New Testament as it's canonized. And then also uh, people read that and assume he's talking about the New Testament, which had not been written. Ah. <laughs> if you know your history and you've been in my other talks, you know that when Paul was writing, the Gospels were not. Uh, he had no access to our Gospels. So there's a fly in the system there. If we're going to quote that, we have to admit he's talking about the Hebrew Bible. Okay, now, there's also this thing that hung over my head my entire high school career, and probably still does. I have a problem with authority. <laughs> my father could attest to that probably more than anyone. If he told me black, I'd say white, and it's, that's the way it went. And I tried not to be that way with my children, not to be so authoritarian. My dad was always right, even when he was wrong, and that's not the best plan. So one of the reasons I think people have trouble with authority is because a lot of the authorities are not worth trusting. Not making any sense? So we say, you have a problem with authority. I'm like, are you trustworthy is the real question. <laughs> and they'll say, well, you have a problem with authority, and that's why you're asking me. You know, we're back in that circle. So here I am in my college years, and you can see it right there on my face. <laughs> All right, so that describes me in a very early age. I just don't believe in things just because I'm told to. This, this is so much better. I don't like... It's also kind of tinny, but all right. We'll go for it. All right, so... I thought, let's go back and look. Why should we trust in the authority of Scripture? All right, so three ways to gain authority. Anybody got a theory besides that one you can confer it on yourself? <laughs> I am the authority. I am very important. I am very wise. You should listen to me. Trust me. I just bought a car yesterday. I've heard them all. 
believe me, we checked the car. <laughs> That's humorous, dude. All right, so you can confer it on yourself. But do we all agree that that's the weakest way to get authority? Yes, we know as parents when we have to go, because I said so, that's really untenable. <laughs> but we just got to get some things done. It can be conferred from another, and that's a happier one, isn't it? When I became manager of a restaurant, they said, you're the manager, and there I was. And I remember the first time I had to make a hard decision because I didn't even know the price of something. It was like somebody was riffing off of a meal and I didn't know, you know how to substitute, how to price it. And the, the server said to me something really brilliant. She goes, you're the manager, make something up, we'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> so that's conferred. But I think what I wanted in the, when I was working there is I didn't want it to be just conferred. I wanted it to be what? Earned. And that's the strongest kind, isn't it? where they trusted me because I was trustworthy. I'd proven myself over time. So as I began to run the restaurant, I began to give them more and more authority and actually go more into the sidelines. To me, managing is just being there to make sure it happens, but letting everyone else do it. All right, so I found out when my daughter was born and I had to take a few weeks off the restaurant ran perfectly, and they were guilty about it. I came back, and they go, how'd it go? And they're like, they didn't know what to say. <laughs> it went well, and we made a lot of money. <laughs> and inventory's caught up, and everything's fine. They didn't want to tell me that, and I'm like, no, really, that just means I'm a good manager. I earned it. Does that make sense? Same thing in my classrooms. When I walk in the first day, it's just conferred from self and from another, right? They know that I was hired to do it and I'm just trying to tell them, but eventually what do I want? To lead people, I think it has to be earned. And I think it is a sign of weakness when you do things like make people sign you know, oaths, loyalty oaths and things like that. I'm like, if you're a good leader, nobody's gonna sign, wanna sign an oath to follow you, are they? They're gonna follow you. All right, so let's look at this. This is Exodus, and this is when God is giving the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt not have no other gods before me. Which of those three do you think that exemplifies? It's earned. I think we forget this sometimes, that the history of the Old Testament is the history of God entering into history. Now, you can believe that or not, but that's what the basis of the book is, that God is not out there somewhere, that God picks Abraham, enters into history, and so it's earned. Does that make sense? But if I'd have just read, I am the Lord thy God, thy shall know it, if I just read that passage, you'd think, oh, he's just telling us that he's God. But the beginning of it is, I earned this. Does that make sense? So already I was a little surprised doing this research because my opinion was, you know, that God just sort of told us he was God and that was that. But it's more, it's more like I came into history to show you and earn your respect. Okay, longer passage. The story from John about the, um, when he's encountering, quote, the Jews. And if you've been in my other talks, you know, John is the one that gets us into some sketchy territory with the battles with the Jews. But... 
Are we not right in saying that you're a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. If you look down here, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is your God. So which kind of authority is that? It's conferred. Right, so that makes sense. Now, of course, if you read all the Gospels, Jesus is trying to earn it, isn't he? By teaching, by healing, by being there for people. But on some level, he has to say, I'm in authority because I've been, God has said that. And then when you look at the baptism, same thing. It's to say, this is my son. Okay, so the Old Testament, God earned his authority through the delivery of the Hebrew people from bondage. Kind of got that out of order. Jesus sees his authority as conferred on him by his father. Jesus speaks his authority, not as one of the scribes. And it says he spoke with authority, not as one of the scribes. Okay, so, but here's the problem. And of course, me and my cynical, brushing my hair back self back there, would say to you, and I would say to you now, that's circular reasoning. To quote the Bible to say that the Bible's true. What do I have to believe in to believe you? The Bible. Right, so if I don't believe in the Bible... We got nothing. So I wanted to step back and look at how all of this works. So confirm from self, confirm from another earned. From the self, your argument is circular. If you have to say, trust me, you've already lost the ball game, haven't you? Whenever I hear someone say, trust me, I don't trust you anymore. <laughs> it works every time. You know what I'm saying? The only time you would really legitimately have to say, trust me, is if you've done something before and you know it's safe and the other person is worried. But otherwise, like, trust me that my opinion's right, that's weak. It's weak. From another is circular as well. If we say the Bible tells us the Bible is the word of God, bam, we got a circle. Old Testament and New Testament assert that humans cannot judge God, but the only way to know this is through ordinary words in a book in the words of authorities who use that word. So either I have to trust some authority who told me or I have to trust the words in a book. Now, I don't know about you, but not all words in books are trustworthy. So how do I know this one is? Best way is earned, isn't it? First-hand experience. When I, was, when I teach argumentation, I'm like, always speak from your experience because no one can argue with what you've experienced. They can tell you there's another interpretation they can tell you you're insane, but they can't argue with what you know from your experience. Unfortunately, they can get you to question your experience sometimes. <laughs> Do you think that really happened? And you're like, uh, <laughs> don't set me down that road. Okay, but do we agree that experience is the best way? Right? Just like when I was buying the car yesterday. How many cars have you sold? You know what I'm saying? How much have you done this? The trouble is, experience is not transferable. You know this from raising children, right? I can't just put my experience into my children. I wish that I could convey at least some of it, but you can't. It's not transferable, and so you have to watch them make mistakes, do stupid things, and you have to suffer because they do. 
Okay, so let's back up at the logic of that just for a second. What happens is, because experience is non-transferable, we, we resort to the other two, one, two of them, right? Just, I'm your dad, just listen to me, right? So automatically, I go into a weaker way of presenting it so that they'll trust me. Does that really work? I've been teaching for years and years and years, and I tell my students stuff all the time. I don't know how much it saves them in terms of pain. About all I think it can do is help them when something happens to go, you know, he did say something helpful about how to deal with that. That's about all I've got. Okay, this problem is also unique to what they, the religions they call the people of the book, the big three over here in the West, right? So Islam, Judaism, and Christianity, not to mention the Mormons. There's something about Western European culture that just, and, and Eastern European, Middle Eastern thinking that books and words become this thing to be followed. Okay, so for instance, the Hindus have sacred books but only because they share truth. So one of the things that it actually says in the Bhagavad Gita is that truth is experienceable, so don't listen to anything I tell you that you cannot experience. And something radical that it says is once you know the truth, you don't need the book. And that's pretty much true. Once I've read the manual for the car, you know, I've got it. And I just need to go back occasionally, but once, once you have it, you have it. And then truth is progressively uh, revealed until you reach enlightenment or moksha. In Buddhism, they have sacred books, but it's only just to lay down some of the principles and rules and to record some sayings of the Buddha. Truth, again, is experiential. Truth is inexpressible, so they don't even believe in words. The Buddhists believe words are kind of a hindrance to seeing reality. Hindus do as well, but they give it a, a different kind of a role that they see them, well, both of them see them kind of like signposts. So truth progresses until we reach nirvana. Okay, so people of the book evaluate truth by whether it's written, uh, fits with previously written truth. So it's no accident that people of the book came up with like the rule of law. Does that make sense? And they're not the only people in the world, of course, to do it. China did as well, India did as well. Cultures all over the world have come up with the idea of the rule of law. But it's no, it's no coincidence that we're kind of obsessed with it, with laws and obeying laws. And we see that as a way to protect each other. Like if we all obey the same laws, then we're not going to kill each other over things because we'll just go like, what's the law say? It's a very safe way of looking at reality. The trouble is we end up with saying that the truth is unchanging and unchangeable. The Bible is over. And you just have to go with that, we're done, right? If you look at the example of Jesus, it's not exactly what's happening, is it? He's updating it. This is what it says, this is what I say. The big question is, can we do that? Or is that something only Jesus could do? Okay, and here's the thing. If you look all through the book of Proverbs, etc., it's like you don't learn through your experience of the world, you learn through the book, right? Through the words. So if you have any kind of a problem, where do you go? It's like a handbook for life. And I've heard people use that phrase, right? It's the handbook for life, like it was written for that very purpose. Okay, so in a sense, you create your own problem. Once you begin to say that scripture is the way that you find reality, then you stop looking at reality. And we've seen how well that's gone at times, yes? <laughs> oh, wait, uh, the earth is not the center of the universe? Let's kill this guy. 
right? You can see how well that's gone if going back to the book. All right, so we end up with this, Martin Luther. Sola Scriptura is the policy, and it's the policy of most Protestant churches. Um, it means Christian scriptures are the sole source of authority of Christian faith and practice. So, Michael, sorry. That's it. <laughs> and it's over for me, too. All right. The trouble is with this is you believe in the scriptures in order to believe in the scriptures, right? Okay. Uh, the problem with this also, how do we know that it's trustworthy? Because it's my experience. Does it fit my experience? Which scriptures, which is the next question I'm going to ask this week. It was all decided for us. <laughs> all right, so let's look briefly at the canon, which is not something you fire something out of that has two ends. This is from Greek, a Greek word that we'll see in a minute. Writings attributed to the apostles circulated among the earliest Christian communities. The Pauline epistles were circulating, perhaps in collective forms, by first century A.D. So the first things that were floating around were some of the purported epistles of the apostles. Wow, epistles of the apostles. And the Pauline epistles were circulated very early. So if you've seen some of my other talks, that meant that Christianity basically follows Pauline doctrine because he's kind of like their first. And in a lot of ways, the Gospels get reinterpreted through his framework, his more Greek framework. So Justin Martyr, and his la that's not his last name. Anybody know what martyr means? <laughs> it meant to bear witness, yes, but so many of them got killed that eventually it meant to bear witness and die. All right, so uh, these are all fakey portraits. We don't know what the guy looked like, but... Justin Martyr, 100 to 165 AD, known as St. Justin, was an early Christian from Nablus on the West Bank, who was martyred in Rome. It's interesting where all these people are. Most of them are African or, or even up in France. All right, so a defined set of four Gospels, the Tetramorph, was asserted by Irenaeus. He lived about 130 to 202. He was a Greek bishop noted for his role in guiding and expanding Christian communities. Some even advocated for some of his writings to be a part of the scriptures. Because he heard the preaching of Polycarp, a very unfortunate name. Sometimes names in other languages just don't look right. Like Polycarp just doesn't read well in English, does it? The last known living connection with the apostles who in turn was said to have heard John the Baptist. So this guy at least heard a guy who heard John, the evangelist. I think I said Baptist. All right. He was chosen as the Bishop of Lyon, and he wrote a book called Against Heresy. So we can see from the very beginning, all the way back in 130 to 202, we were starting to get in arguments as to which were scriptures and which were not. So he said there are three authorities, scriptures, the tradition handed down from the apostles, and the teaching of the apostles' successors, which some of that would still be oral at this time. It's not that long since that, um, the time of Jesus at the time of the apostles. Third century, Origen, spelled with an E, he, uh, he used the 27 books of the present New Testament canon, though there were still disputes over acceptance of the letter to the Hebrews, and this is disputed all the way to the, some of the final councils. 
to James, to 2 Peter, to 2 John, 3 Jude, Jude, and Revelation. Okay, I actually talked about this in another talk. But the, there are a number of reasons why these were disputed. Most of them were authorship questions. Is this truly written by this person? Which brings us back to the root of our word, authority. Who wrote them? And a lot of people were not convinced these were written by the people they were purported to be written by. Okay, the irony is the further you get from these, the origin of these books, not to make a pun off of his name, then we seem to get a clearer idea that they're supposed to be there. Wouldn't you think it'd be the opposite? Like the closer you are to the beginning, like, okay, yeah, this guy, <laughs> he saw this, you know, they were there. All right, you know, but the further away they get, the more they feel like, oh, you know, then all these other reasons besides authorship start to come in. Like, does it fit with what we've already set up that we're looking for? Now, the trouble is with, the, with comparison. I, I work in a field called comparative rhetoric, where we look at rhetorical practices in China, Japan, India. And the problem with comparison is no matter where you start, you tend to think yours is better. If you've traveled, you know what I mean. Sometimes I'm like, these people are weird. I don't like this. I was in Croatia, and, and I was eating breakfast, and everybody else, quote, eating breakfast, had a beer and a cigarette. <laughs> so I, I talked to this uh, Croatian woman later, and she says, well, what do you think so far? And I said, I don't want to you know, make huge generalizations here, but it, apparently breakfast in Croatia is a beer and a cigarette. And she goes, oh, yeah, we're very healthy. <laughs> she didn't even say that ironically. Like, yeah, that's normal breakfast here. Now, anyone from Croatia, I apologize. <laughs> okay. There was also a Muratorian fragment around 200 that, that shows that there was a list. That's a very happy picture of him. You can barely see it. Origin, it's like playing a, I don't know what he's doing. But he's Origin of Alexandria, which would be in Egypt. Also, Origin Adamantius was an early Christian scholar, aesthetic, and theologian. This prolific writer who wrote 2,000 treatises and multiple branches of theology. All right, so he was big on biblical exegesis, biblical hermeneutics, homiletics, spirituality. He's one of the most influential figures in early Christian theology. Have you ever read him? There you go. I know, when I took a course in the New Testament, they made us read Origin. I'm like, who's this guy? I was not really savvy with what was happening there. I didn't know these people were very important in the early church. All right, and a lot of the things that we, quote, believe now came from the discussions and the debates that they had. All right, so Easter letter 367, Athanasius, Bishop of Alexandria, same place, gave a list of books that would become 27, because Egypt became sort of a hub of Christianity, that would become the 27-book canon. It was canonized, and there it Wait, I know how to speak Greek and I can't read it. Kanazanamena. Man, the woman who taught me Greek would just be horrified at what I just did there. Kanazanamena. There, that's better. Athanasius of Alexandra, called Athanasius the Great, or the Confessor, or the Apostolic. All right, he was, uh, a, a, he was over an episcopate, he ruled for 30, 45 years, and he's considered one of the church fathers. And he was the defender of Trinitarian 
sin, against Arianism. So we already see that all these things we take for granted that people believed, a lot of Christians didn't believe it, and they were Christians. They were people who identified as Christians who were trying to be worshiping Christians, followers of Christ. Everybody understand that? Later on, they get called heretics. But at the time, in numbers, there might be just as many people who believe this as what we call um, orthodox. The Arian position was the Son of God, Jesus, is a distinct substance from the Father. So you said the Apostles' Creed. Do you remember the line that is relevant to that? Yeah. Okay, so it got settled in the Apostles' Creed, basically. <clears throat> but at this time, it was kind of up for grabs. Was Jesus the same as God? Was he a different substance than God? And I think it's unfair to say these people were heretics in the sense that they, they were sincerely trying to be Christians. They were trying to live life. They weren't, you know, radically um, throwing out morality or anything like that. There were groups that kind of did that, but these people were not those. All right, so we finally get to the fourth century. We have the Senate of Hippo in North Africa. It's amazing how we're also ignorant that the church really forms in, in, the, in North Africa much more than a lot of us are aware now. We know they got kicked out. I mean, Jerusalem was destroyed. They had to go somewhere. And they began to move up into what we would call Asia Minor and down into Egypt. It's funny how everybody always ends up back in Egypt. All right, so these councils were on the authority of St. Augustine. Please don't call him Augustine, because he was Augustine. I know they named the city after him. It should be Augustine, Florida, but nobody's going to go for that. I've been there, a beautiful city. But anyway, just to sort of sum up, the majority of the writings are claimed to have been accepted by most all Christians by the middle of the third century. Here are some writings that didn't make it. You can get online and read them now. We still have copies of these. Some are more fragmented, but we still have something left of these. Now, if, any, if you're running the those books, the lost books of the Bible, the books that you're not supposed to read, like uh, a type. These have been around. People don't know about them. <laughs> They're not undiscovered. They're right there. And they were right there in the early church. And we'll see that some of these were accepted as part of the Bible, the New Testament Bible. Okay. But these got left out eventually. The Apocalypse of Peter, the Epistle of Barnabas, the Infancy Gospel of James, which sounds pretty cool, Shepherd of Hermas. Shepherd of Hermas is a lovely, lovely book. The Didache, which means the teachings of the apostles. The Lost Epistle of Corinthians, the Epistle of Barnabas, and Third Letter of Corinthians. You're like, there was a third letter? And then uh, Q makes the list. Q is the source that we don't have. That one we don't have. But they conjecture that there was a common source for Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And they called it Q for Quella. The guy was a German. Quella means source. So, fun reading. You can usually you can look at them online and, and read them. All right, so it continues. I just want to skip through some of this stuff because it gets, you know, it, the popes are starting to get in on the action here. Um, but basically by this time, um, fourth century or so, they're just kind of ratifying what everybody already believes is happening. In fifth century, it becomes solidified. But here's the thing that's really kicking the head and very surprising. The final... Um, versions of the New Testament that we carry around today and Old Testament 
they weren't completely verified until the 1500s. So 1546, and it's really because of Protestantism, and they begin to argue over, you know, Luther says some of the books of the Bible shouldn't be there, which now we just put off in the side of the Apocrypha or the Pseudepigrapha. All right, so 1546 was uh, the canon of, Roman Catholicism canonized their final version. Um, Calvinists, 1559, basically the Protestant Bible. 1563, Church of England, so Episcopal. And the Synod of Jerusalem, Greek Orthodox, was the last in 1672. So, kind of a new book in some ways, right? The one that you're normally looking at was only in its final version, and plus these other versions. So there is that question, like, do I go with the Greek Orthodox? Do I go with the Catholic? Do I go with the Protestant? All right, I want to look at a test case, how we got in this mess in the first place. And it's interesting that I think the process of canonization begins with a guy who, he wants to establish a canon, but they don't like it. You know what I'm saying? It's like he thought of the idea, and then everybody's like, well, that's not acceptable, so we better come up with a canon, or we're going to have people like this going, you know, the loose canons. <laughs> All right, so this guy's Marcian of Sinope. Okay, so he's Turkish, or born Turkish, but he ends up moving to Rome. And so the decisions that are made about what is orthodox and heresy have a lot to do with his ideas. That reminds me a lot of when, when, uh, when I'm talking to my students and I go, a lot of times you don't, you're not sure what something is, but you know what it's not. You know what I'm saying? I don't know if I'm happy, but I know I'm not sad. <laughs> okay, so, and a lot of times that's, you know, again, that's a really sad retreat. Like, to be a man is just not to be a woman. Well, that just gets us into another can of worms. But you can see how a lot of thinking comes from what is it not. So he kind of expressed to people what it... Uh, let me put it another way. I have a colleague of mine, and she's notorious for when we have promotion and tenure, she's notorious for voting no for people. And her reasons are good, but it's like other people weigh it differently. But what was handy about her is whenever she said no, I was like, that's what no looks like. So unless I agree with her, <laughs> I have to say yes or yes with reservations. Does that make sense? So sometimes it's good to know what no looks like. This is not what we want. And it gives you some idea of what you do want. In fact, that's, gosh, that sounds like a story of my life. <laughs> when I bought my car yesterday, I asked... Yes, I did. I bought a convertible sports car. Such a cliche. Such, such a cliche. Kids are grown. <laughs> but it was kind of like, no, it's not red. Silver. I looked at a red one. I was like, no, nah, it's too much. But every car I've ever bought was a reaction against the previous car. In a lot of ways, every woman I ever dated was a reaction against the woman before. You know, it's like, this works in life, doesn't it? Like, that's, I know that's what I don't want. <laughs> I was like, I don't want this car. I want a convertible. 
all your life, you know, you're like, no, I got to get the practical car. I got, we got to get the kids in and out of this thing. Got to get low gas mileage, all this stuff. And finally, I just went, just in time for winter. <laughs> Did I have the top down yesterday? Yes. yes. <laughs> Will I today? Yes. I don't care. Okay, so let's look at Marcion. He's the son of a wealthy ship owner, Bishop of Sinope, lived in Rome during the second century, and attempted to create the first official New Testament canon. Marcion's work focused on the Gospel of Luke and the letters of Paul. The Roman church disapproved of his list, and they expelled him. <laughs> okay. But I think what is interesting is Marcion's complaints still hold. Every one of these I've thought about. Every one of them, and maybe you have too. You know those moments where you're going like, wait a second, I'm supposed to believe this, but... Uh... All right, so he says, the code of conduct advocated by Moses, he says that he doesn't even think that Jesus and the God of the Old Testament, like, no. Jesus must be worshiping some other God because the God of the Old Testament, it doesn't fit. So he points it out. He says, the code of conduct advocated by Moses was eye for eye, but Christ set it aside. Just like, nope, not going to happen. Elijah had children eaten by bears. You know, one of those stories that's a little hard to explain. And Christ said, let the children come to me. Joshua stopped the sun in his path. Paul quoted Christ as commanding, do not let the sun go down in your wrath. In the Old Testament, divorce was permitted. So it was polygamy. In the New Testament, neither is allowed. So he's like, it's not just a new covenant. Maybe it's not even the same God. And I've had students when I've taught um, Bible as literature raise that kind of question. Like, I don't see how this could be the same God. Jesus seems to be talking about somebody else. All right, he also focused on some contradictions in the Old Testament. God commanded no work should be done on the Sabbath, and then he told the Israelites to carry the ark on Jericho, around Jericho on the Sabbath. No graven image was to be made, but Moses made a bronze serpent. Raised that question myself. What's up with that? This is the guy with the Ten Commandments. And when the people were sick, he puts a bronze serpent on the pole, and they get healed by looking at it. What's happening? The deity revealed in the Old Testament could not have been omniscient, otherwise God would have not asked, and I've raised this question too, where was God when Adam and Eve were doing what they were doing? What are you over, having a Coke? You know, I, I would get kind of cynical. Like, why wasn't he there? So you have, logically, you have to think he, he didn't want to be there. He wasn't paying attention on purpose. If he's omniscient, though, how do you not pay attention? Are these conundrum? Are, conundra? Do they still last today? I still wonder about these things. All right, so he accepted. He rejected the entire Old Testament. <laughs> I guess not too surprising. But I, I've heard people in the modern age say, I don't have much use for that part. I know it's the basis. I know it's quoted in the New Testament, but, you know, it's just depressing. In his opinion, the 12 apostles misunderstood the teaching of Christ. Now, see, so he sees Jesus as, in, as through a Greek lens, that he is God come to earth, right? And here's a very Greek idea that God, the gods come to earth. That's a very Hindu idea as well. But he sees that as a Greek idea, so he's going to like Luke because Luke was a Greek. Does that make sense? And he writes, it's the Gentile. If you're looking at which of the books of the Bible is focused on the Gentiles, Luke. So it makes sense that he's going to think Luke is the one who didn't completely lose the ball. 
So then he looked for anything Judaizing and ripped it out. So even Luke, he did a severe edit. So the Evangelicon and the Paulist letter, the Apostolicon. So he likes Paul as well because Paul, again, interprets the story through a Greek lens. I've talked about that in one of the previous talks. So this is what he said would be the New Testament. You know, the three Gospels are gone, but Galatians, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Romans, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, and Philippians. So he's on track, but it's pretty much just Paul and Luke. But as you, as you might recall, there are associations in the book of Acts between Paul and Luke, so this all makes some sense. He, he sees Luke as being in the line with what Paul said. about. He also takes very seriously that Paul said there's one gospel. He's like, if there's one gospel, why do we have four? Very literal. <laughs> okay, so he believed there's one true gospel, and he says that uh, Galatians, which Paul emphasizes there's only one gospel, states there are false brethren. So he sees it as the other books are by false brethren. So this guy's sincere. You know, he's not doing this to jerk people around. He's logically looking at it. So he only really trusted the Gospel of Luke. The source I looked at said they didn't know why, but to me it's obvious it's because it's Greek. It's, it's influenced and it's about the Gentiles. <clears throat> All right, so his, I think his observations about the Scriptures still hold. A lot of people still have the same questions. And getting thrown out is not exactly the way to have dealt with him, I don't think. I think, you know, let's talk about this would have been a better solution. He tested the boundaries of orthodoxy, revealed a need for a canon, and at the same time showed that the canon was being decided about popularity. Because if you look at the history, a lot of it is these are the books that most churches are reading. So the popularity argument. With, fit with current ideas. So as the ideas changed, so did the list. And then it was decided by committee. And all of us should be slightly terrified, but that's how it worked, right? They had councils, and all the bishops would convene, and they would decide, these are in, these are out. All right. So, Marcion was basically what we now call a Gnostic, and they called them Gnostics back then. <clears throat> he undertook to expunge everything, and then he said, since Jesus was, only had the appearance of being human, see, this is still being debated, he couldn't have been born a woman, so he took out the birth parts so in the last chapters, the emissions are more numerous than the first, and the resurrection just kind of passed over in silence. All right, so what was Gnosticism? I'm not going to read all of this stuff, but it's from the Greek Gnosis. Gnosos, Gnosos. But um, this, these beliefs lasted for centuries and centuries. Uh, Manichaeism, and they're also in Iran, uh, in Iraq. Make sure I get this right. In the Middle East, there are still Gnostic sects, the Manich called Manichaeans. All right, so they believed that uh, uh, the material world is made by a lower god, and that would be who we'd meet in the Old Testament, this kind of demiurge, this jealous and pushy. Um, who creates the world, trapping all of a, in all of us a divine spark. I hear people still say divine spark. 
um, in us. And the, ex- and the emphasis is on direct experience. So people would meet and they would have these secret kind of club things where they would teach the secret knowledge of experience. They believe that all matter is evil and non-material spiritual realm is good. You see Paul arguing with them and that a lot of them said, well, we can eat food meant for idols or we can sleep with whoever we want to because the material body's worth nothing. So Paul actually is arguing with Gnostics back in, the, in his day. All right, so still alive in Iraq. Um, very similar in some ways to Zoroastrianism, if you're familiar with that. So this, this uh, it didn't just go away. So, yeah, I can't see this. Um, but I can kind of point things out, I think. So from the earliest time, here's Marcion's canon. You can see. <laughs> Tiny. But down here are some things that uh, were in, in uh, around this time, about 170. So like um, the Apocalypse of Peter, the Wisdom of Solomon, Jude, and Revelation were in, and then they were out. And Revelation's one of the last to get in. It waits till about 3.30. I know, when people are start talking about the book of Revelation, I'm like, that was a late comer. I don't even know how much weight we put on that. All right, so 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, these were challenges. And Titus, people didn't really believe Paul had actually written those. And you can see they were on for a while, off for a while, back on again. And even 2 Thessalonians remained as a maybe. <laughs> and so did 2 John. So we can see some things came in at the last minute and then were taken out, the shepherd of Hermas and the epistle of Barnabas. So it was all decided in this complicated history that I didn't want to try to get into today, and I'm sure you'd appreciate it if I didn't. You're probably thinking this was long enough. I'm thinking this was long enough. All right, so some books were accepted at some points. Some uh, came in and out, like the shepherd of Hermas and epistle of Barnabas. First and second, Clement were on lists around 400. So Clement was an early church father. He almost made it into the scriptures. Second John and Second Thessalonians were doubted in 450. Revelation was not accepted, or no, was a no until 330. All right, a little more detail. Matthew and Mark were in doubt at first. How about that? Even though Mark, we now know, was the first gospel written. It probably connects the most directly to the time of the apostles. The epistle of James, Peter, and Hebrews were rejected in 170. Later on, Martin Luther wanted to throw James out again. Epistles of John were questioned until the 300s. Apocalypse of Peter and Book of Wisdom were in 170. So, do we follow the leading of the councils? How do we know? Do we just trust them on authority, which would be second method? Yes? Trust me. So, let's see, do Americans take it on authority? (laughs) Do we just go like, well, you told me it's the Bible, and the Bible is true, so I believe it. Let's see, do Americans do that? The answer would be a resounding, yeah. All right, how many many Americans have read the Bible? Now, this includes Christians and non-Christians, right? So practicing Christians, but people who at least have a Bible, I guess. How many of you read the Bible? 10%, not a word. 13%, a few sentences. 30%, several passages or stories. 15%, at least half. Almost all of it, 12. All of it, 
whenever someone says almost all of it, I'm kind of like, huh, really? All of it, I'm beginning to feel so smart, aren't you? I'm like, I've read it, I don't know how many times. But, and then all of it more than once there, I'm being the 9%. Yay! Because I tell people, like, when they start to argue with me, I'm like, have you read the whole thing? Because I don't want to get in an argument with you if you haven't read the whole thing. You've read, like, 30% of it. you got nothing to say. Go away. It's like, I went to med school for the first year. <laughs> now I can argue with you about the symptoms. What? All right. I'm like, it's not that long. You can read a little bit a day. All right, Americans have a positive view of the Bible, and many say Christian scriptures are filled with moral lessons for today. However, more than half of Americans have read little or none of the Bible. Less than a quarter of those ever read a Bible have a systematic plan for reading it, and a third of Americans never pick it up on their own. This is done by Lifeway, that, that publishing company. All right, so small wonder many church leaders worry about biblical illiteracy. Now, all you have to do is add it up. If they're not reading it, where are they getting it? Yeah. They're taking it on authority. Most Americans don't know firsthand the overall story of the Bible because they rarely pick it up. McConnell said, even among worship attendees, less than half read the Bible daily. The only time most Americans hear from the Bible is when someone else is reading it. Man, we're in like this big trust me kind of framework here. Oh, yeah, well, it is because I say so. Okay. I'll buy the car. All right, so many unfamiliar with the biblical text, almost 9 out of 10 households, 82% own a Bible. 9 out of 10 households. According to the Maryland Bible Society, average household has three. <laughs> but Bible reading is spotty. All right, so let's wrap this thing up. What's the best kind of authority? <laughs> First hand. Do we have evidence that anyone is experiencing that? Uh, no. It seems like we take uh, the conferred from self, which the Bible is the Bible because the Bible says it's so, right? It's the word of God because the word of God told me that. Okay, that's slot number one. Number two is somebody told me it was true, so therefore I believe it. And that's where most Americans are. Earned, not really making the list. All right, let's look back at 2 Timothy 3. Remember that one that I looked at the beginning? Let's look at the context. All scripture, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Now, you follow my teaching, conduct purpose, conduct purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions and sufferings, which happened to me at Antioch and Iconium at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them, all of them, the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, what's he say? Continue in the things you have learned. Boom. What have you experienced? Continue in what you've experienced and... Know who you learned it from. One of the things, one of the earliest arguments, as you could see, my hair was long even when I was 
in college, and it was as long as this at some points. Remember, my grandfather tried to teach me to cut it, or get me to cut it, because it would please my father. He said, if you can please your father by doing something as simple as cutting your hair, it'll grow back. Do it. And I did. Why? Because my grandfather loved me. He said, I don't care how long you are here. Don't make any difference to me. And I'll love you no matter what you do, who you are. He said, but your father, different thing. <laughs> you could please him by doing something superficial. And I'm like, all right, I'll do it. Does that make sense? So, who do we listen to? This is what Paul is saying. If it is Paul, it doesn't really matter at this point. We've, we've, we've institutionalized it. But the point is, he's trying to say, think about and live what you've learned, what you've experienced. Put it into action. If you haven't experienced it, what are you doing? And second of all, you know you learned it from me and from the other apostles. You learned this, right? You studied it under people who loved you and cared and did the work themselves. Because the implication is, I learned from my experience, and I conveyed that to you. I didn't just learn it out here. I didn't just go, like, I'm going to blindly obey this. If you look at Paul's testimony, right? He has a vision. He has an experience of Christ. Nobody could shake him from that. Experiential. Then he begins to think about the scriptures, right? Not the other way around. And that from childhood, you've known the sacred writings. So that's the third thing on the list. Right? First, your experience. Second, you had teachers who loved you. Third, scriptures. Then he says, all scriptures inspired by God. So if you look at the context, we get it all backwards. Take a Bible and throw it at somebody, you need to believe this. And that's not going to work. Right? But if you can help them, guide them to share an experience and then say, read this, it'll tell you more about it. Yeah? Like, I'm driving around in my new car, and I don't know where half of anything is. I like to want to adjust the mirror, and I'm like, I don't know what it is. I didn't read the manual yet, right? The guy showed me a few basic things. Experience had showed me some others. But what did I need to do? Go back to the manual, fill in the gaps. Is this making any sense? I think we get it all backwards. We tell people, well, you know, God said this or God said that. They're like, I don't have a frame of reference for that. That's not my experience, right? And he puts it in that order, and I think it's, it's a brilliant order. So that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Make sure you have that little, what they call it, triangulation. To understand something, study it from three directions. Your experience, your teachers, the scriptures. Bam. Michael and I are back on the table. All right, so let's sum it up. This journey didn't go where I wanted it to go. I don't know where I wanted it to go, but it, it wasn't this. <laughs> but I love it when that happens, when I start adding it up and I go, I like the way this is going. Because in a lot of ways, I'm telling you, you're trusting a lot of people who made other choices for you. Maybe you should question that. On the other hand, I'm trying to say, look at your experience of the world. Start from there. Look at that. See how it fits. Does that make sense? Because you can't get people to do stuff that's contrary to their experience. You just can't get people to do that. True? If somebody says, just step off that bridge. Nothing's going to happen. You're like, no. 
I understand how stepping off bridges works. <laughs> That's not true to my experience. <laughs> All right. So, uh, belief in authority is based in experience. Earned authority is undoubtedly the least movable kind. Apparently, because most of us believe in the authority of Scripture because we're told to, or because we unreflectively accept authority, because it says so in the Bible, those are the weakest ways to believe, and that's easily, easily trashed, isn't it? If you're just told something, and then your experience is going a different direction, I throw it out, don't you? Like it doesn't hold water. I know, and a lot of times they gloss over stuff to the point that when your experience happens, as it did in, in my life, um, I got very disappointed in the church at one time because it felt like they were telling me this one story and doing this other thing, right? And a lot of people feel that way. Which one's going to rule? Am I just going to blindly go back through the door or am I going to go like you people are hypocrites? All right, much of the wisdom in the Bible can be tested experientially. Parts you can't test are the histories, right? That these people lived, these things happened. So next week, we'll get into that. <laughs> All right, thanks.